The Father is always looking for two things. You can boil it down to these two things. He's looking for a person and he's looking for a place. Encouraging, inspiring, and equipping leaders. This is Coach and Joe. Welcome to Coach and Joe. I'm here with Michael Thornton. Michael, you wrote a book a while back called Igniting Cities. Yes. And I remember I, I started to read that book and I couldn't stop reading it. Mm. And you started talking about Shechem and you started connecting so many things to Shechem. Yes. When I say Shechem, what do you think of? So many things. Well, the first thing I think of, what is Shechem? You know, who's even heard of that? And my attention got drawn to Shechem in the Bible because it was the very first place in Genesis 12, 1, where Abraham uh, came and the Lord led him and he left to everything. And it said in Genesis 12, 1, when Abraham arrived in what we now know as, you know, Israel, the promised land, the very first place, as soon as he got there was a place called Shechem. And that is the very first place that the Lord appeared to him. And he, he, he confirmed the promise and Abraham leaned in and built an altar to God at Shechem. And my question was, out of all the places this could have took place, why not Jerusalem? Why not Capernaum? Why not Nazareth? Why Shechem? I got a lot to talk about. <laughs> I feel like this is about to be a part therapy session and part theological training session. So I led our worship team meeting last night. Mm. And recently the father said, Chad, you're the worship leader at the garden. I've been getting words about me leading here with an ephod on. We're going to get into all that. And recently, the level of glory in this house at the Garden Greenville undeniably is increasing. Yes. To the point where I, I could have gotten a DUI driving home <laughs> six weeks ago after a glory night. It has been increasing. It's been I was in, it's I been was incredible. concerned to drive. I was I felt drunk. It was hard to leave the room. It, it was so powerful. It was so hard to leave the room. All right. Let's, I'm curious your thoughts on this. Recently, the father's been showing me because I, I asked him. I'm very curious with him. Hmm. Like, Father, what is the difference in the, even in the natural in this room? I, I don't mean like, I don't mean like overly spiritual feeling. I, I mean like discernible higher level of glory in the room. Even like when I walked in here to film because we're in the sanctuary, and he entered me last night during the worship team meeting, and he said, "You built an altar here over the last eight years." Hmm. And I said, I, I love childlike faith. I said, will you please show me what that means? And he showed me your book. Wow. And so let's talk about, there's something about Shechem. Mm-hmm. There's a reason God went there. Yes. All right. What, right, we're in the new covenant now, and it's not like I literally built an altar here, but God says you've been building an altar through consecrated Zadok prayer and worship it's a more pure form of being invited into ministering to the lord not to people right yes what's the connection with bethel shechem and what what did it mean for abraham to build god an altar what is that all about yeah it's a great question let's look at it this way through the entire biblical narrative from the old testament to the new the father is always looking for two things you can boil it down to these two things he's looking for a person and he's looking for a place. And the common denominator is he wants to dwell in both. So he's looking for someone to fully inhabit, 
to dwell in. And he's also looking for a place, a corporate, a region, a city to also dwell in. And that is the connection between Shechem and Bethel because he finds a person in Abraham that he wants to do life with, that he wants to bless, that he wants to start this entire nation, Israel, Christianity, birth from. But it's not enough. He also wants a place where he could actually dwell, his presence could dwell. And Shechem becomes the ground zero because it's the first altar, because it's the first connection point that Abraham and him have. It literally becomes becomes a doorway. It becomes a window between his world and our world. Do you know what he's showing me is the the most important part of the recipe of mm. an altar? It's prayer. Prayer. And it's a certain type of prayer. Do you know that there's there is a, a stream of prayer that the Father is not very happy about because it's more striving to get the Father's attention? Yes. You have to start in righteousness. You have to start with, listen, I'm, I'm clean because it's a gift of the gospel. It's a gift of Jesus. Mm-hmm. If you start a house of prayer that's full of striving as though you're trying to get his attention or rattle his cage until he comes out, that's, that's not a biblical house of prayer. It doesn't work. A biblical house of prayer is more from rest and who I am in Christ, yes. 189 times in the New Testament. But he has shown me that this house of prayer here mm-hmm. that he is developing and he is growing in this garden is the core of the idea of an altar. Yes. I, I, I love teaching. Yeah. I do. I love the Word. I love the Word. But can I say a couple of things? Mm-hmm. For We did not have the written Word in our hands until the 1500s. So I had an open vision recently. And by the way, I love the Word, okay? Yes. I had an open vision recently. It caught me way off guard. I was in the gym working out, and I had an open vision. God showed me into an altar in Acts 13 in Antioch. I saw these eight men in cloaks, and I saw them down on their knees. It made me very emotional. They were praying violently. Mm. I'm going to tell you how to build an altar through prayer. Yes. You cannot build an altar through great teaching or preaching. Mm-mm, it won't work. It, that, why is that? Preaching and teaching serve a specific purpose. All right. The Bible says it's to edify, it's to equip, it's to educate, and that's really important. But prayer really moves into a different dimension. In the prayer that you're talking about, the prayer that we're talking about is prayer that has to come from a right positional heart, heart posture. The motive has to be pure and it has to move into a faith realm. And so when we pray from the place of faith, when we pray from the place of purity, man, the fire of the Lord, I, I believe he can't help but come and visit an altar that way. You know what word comes to my mind for Genesis 1 and 2? Pre-sin? Mm. Communion. Communion. Connection. Mm. You know, what does Satan do in Genesis 3? Or I guess the better way to say is what what did Adam partner with in Genesis 3? Disconnection. Yes. You know what prayer is? Now, I'm talking about intimate prayer now. I'm I'm not talking about legalistic. I mean, for goodness sakes, Michael, Muslims pray more than most of God's kids. Muslims have a culture of prayer that unfortunately trumps what Christianity has as a culture of prayer right now as a whole. And so my point is, you can pray without bonding with the Father. Yes. I mean, for goodness sakes, I guess I could open up a pack of donuts and pray to them, seriously, right? It's not, just because you're praying doesn't mean you're connecting, connecting. and bonding and yes. communion with the Father. I, what What is happening here at the garden mm. is prayer is becoming the centerpiece, a, a certain type of prayer, Shulamite prayer, mm. a culture of rest, a culture of yada, Hebrew word for deep connection with God, a culture of gnosko, Greek word for deep connection with God. Mm. 
Michael, I didn't see this coming from me, but recently I keep getting these words how, how the father's telling me to put the ephod on. Mm-hmm. So talk to me like I'm five years old. David becomes king. He yes. goes through three journeys, Bethlehem, Hebron, and he goes to Jerusalem. I know that you've taught on this so much that it's probably exhausted you by now, but I love it. You get wound up when David does it. When he gets into Jerusalem, he is not acting like a king. No. David is king for several years in Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, and he brings in the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And it's a really defining moment because the Ark had been lost for 40 plus years. It never was tapped into under Saul's reign, but it was the first thing that David wanted to do. So he he rallies the entire nation. He mobilizes all the tribes in this procession to put the presence of God at the center of their government, at the center of their education, at the center of everything that they call society at that time. And when he puts the ark under a tent, by the way, that that's phenomenal. He pitches a tent, puts the ark under the tent, and he begins to establish and raise up musicians and singers. And it's the first time ever in human history that we see what we call a culture of day and night prayer begin to arise. It's the first time. Why did he do it? I really believe because he had a revelation of worship back in the shepherd field. I was going to ask, where did he get the revelation? I believe he got it from the shepherd field. My personal opinion is that in all those years with his harp, he knew how to play his harp before one, before he could play his harp before thousands. You're not going to believe what the Lord has shown me. <laughs> when I asked the question, that Lord answer me. Not only is that true, mm. but this is why Saul was David's greatest gift. He had to learn to worship to even stay alive. Yes. So what threatens to kill us can actually turn us into worship leaders. Well, Chad, you're just getting me wound up right now because that is true worship. True worship yeah. is I'm pouring everything out to him without anything in return. I don't expect anything in return. Yeah. And if you slay me, it's okay. Yeah. You're still good and I'm going to worship you. That is pure worship. I, there's a lot of conversation around the garden of this word ecclesia. Mm. And one of the burdens that's fallen on me is I have a burden to bridge the gap between the kingly and the priestly. When I say kingly and priestly, what do you think of? So kingly and priestly, the first thought that comes kingly is obviously in the marketplace, the secular world that a lot of people work in, that most people work in. Um, and the priestly is the vocational ministry, people that are called to vocational ministry. For me, it's a dangerous conversation when uh, the conversation goes towards kingly first, then priestly, mm. it's not biblical. Mm. And I think it's why there's such a wide gap because the two camps really don't understand each other. I, th- I think there's a problem on both sides of the conversation. Mm-hmm. But recently what I'm noticing is the father has put an absolute burden on me to be a part of a community that's priestly kingly, yes. not kingly priestly. I'll give you a couple examples. Mm-hmm. Leviticus 10 the glory of God kills Nadab and Abihu, sons of the of the high priest, right? Yes. Because they authored, uh, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. Mm. When the glory of God, when I say glory of God, this kabod, the manifest presence of God, James 4, 8, when it starts to infiltrate a family, a business, a church, that's not always a great thing because Ananias and Sapphira were taken out, not just because of their sin, but because the glory was so high, mm-hmm. right? Us. So manifested. It's, it's, you would be better off being kingly and staying away from the glory than being kingly and looking down your nose at the priestly. Uh, 
Uzziah was struck by leprosy, mm-hmm. not just because of his pride, but because he was doing priestly duties. Yes. Right? He overstepped his lines. And so this is just, I feel like I have a word, not just for me, but for the house and whoever's listening. It's great to carve up the Davidic picture with David, but there's a reason the glory didn't kill that man when he's putting that ephod on. If you put that ephod on, even metaphorically, you better make sure that you are in communion with God because you better you'd be better off not being planted in the house of the Lord than bringing pride and mammon into the house of the Lord. Here, this is so good. Here's another thought on it, especially with David, when he's bringing that ark in, he has a crown on. He he has his kingly. He's king seven years, but it says he takes them off. I mean, just let that sit in. He takes off his positional authority. He takes off his crown, he takes off his royal scepter, puts it down, puts on that ephod, that plain garment. And what really triggered, especially his wife in the storyline, is that not only did he dance with all his might in a priestly garment, which would have been for a king to do, a very inappropriate, if you would say, gesture, but it said that he danced with the slave girls as he ushered in the ark. What in the world? He danced with the lowest class of society there was at his time. As a king, he was down in the streets of the least of these. And that's that's powerful. That's powerful. How can someone who is in the kingly grow in the priestly and even let that be the stronger party in the covenant? I think someone that's in the kingly grow in the priestly, I mean, it, it, to me, the first word that comes is humility. It requires humility. It requires choosing humility. You know what I think true humility looks like? Mm. Reminds me of Ed Savolsa in his book, Anointed for Business. True humility will express itself through worship. Yes. And can I say this? Mm. Worship is an expression of whatever's at the center of my heart. And it's not worship, I don't believe, until it comes out of my mouth. A lot of God's kids confuse worship with thinking about God. The best definition of theology I've ever heard is thinking about God. Hang on a second. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Intellectual capital is one of the least capitals compared to spiritual capital. And I know I'm truly humble when I can't keep my mouth shut in the secret place because I just want to worship him. Yes. Not just think about him. Yes. Father, I love you. I enter your courts with thanksgiving and praise. Mm-hmm. Praise is not in my mind. Praise is coming out of my heart through my mouth. Mm. You know what, Chad? I mean, God did not create the world by thinking it. He Correct. spoke it. The kingdom is voice activated. So that's actually counter opposite biblically to think your way into that. You have to speak. There's there's power in our words and our declarations. Do you know the intellectual capital can keep you out of the kingdom? Mm. You can be born again, go to heaven when you die, but never experience the kingdom of God on earth if you don't surrender everything to him. Because the kingdom is the king's domain. Domain. Kingdom. Psalm 24, 1 says, everything in the world is the Lord's and everything in it. Mm. And so what I have to do is complete surrender. When I'm surrendered, this is just what I'm noticing. If I don't understand prayer and worship, there's a problem Mm -hmm. because I may be thinking more about God than worshiping God. Yes. Right? Yes, absolutely. Michael, what is bibliolatry? Bibliolatry? Mm Mm-hmm. Basically, it's a worship of the Bible. You have a theology of the word, but he's not in it. Do you know the religious spirit loves the Bible? Loves it. it like, lo- knows it better than most God's kids. I mean, and, and, and to be honest, right, in history, they, it's actually been used to destroy and hurt a lot of people. You can memorize the Bible and not know the author of the Bible. Mm. 
And you can read the Bible passionately and love the Bible and not be in love with the author of the Bible. Yes. Do you know that in the South, there are a lot of people, they don't know it. There are a lot of people that are in the stream of bibliolatry and don't know it. You know what, Chad? I believe that's really aided in what I call cultural Christianity, especially in the South. And I think the reality is a lot of people who go to church who think they're saved, they're really not saved because of that. So in Acts 13, there's an altar being built. Mm Mm-hmm. Apostles, prophets. Yes. It's a house of prayer, correct? Yes. I mean, you could write a book oh, on that probably, right? Absolutely. Do you know what the devil has has done in the church, specifically in the South, the United States of America? You see most churches led by a teacher. Mm-hmm. Is it evil? No, it's not evil. It's not biblical. Matter of fact, the word pastor shows up one or two times. It's only one or two times. And if you look at the New Testament, <clears throat> like for once, just have enough courage to read the Bible. Yes. Quit going to so many conferences on how to lead your church and ask God, Holy Spirit, how do I need to lead my church? You may find yourself with an apostle and a prophet leading, and and it's not being dominated by teaching only, but it's being dominated by prayer. It, the, mm. the basement's prayer. The first story's prayer. You can't get away from it. I mean, go back to Acts 13, 1, the church in Antioch, pretty much one of the most significant churches ever that was birthed. It says in 13.1, while they worship the Lord with fasting and prayer, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Paul. Yes. And all three missionary journeys, which birthed so many New Testament churches, start in a worship and prayer meeting because Paul and Barnabas just took some time to wait, to linger, yep. to be available. And last night, I think half the worship team looked at me like they thought I was kidding. I hire myself as the worship pastor here. I don't know tons mm-hmm. about music, but I know a lot about worship. Well, here's another insight. You know, Barnabas and Paul, who were at Antioch, people don't understand this, but Barnabas was a Levite. He was from the tribe of Levi. That's wild. Barnabas was also a musician. He know he knew how to Levitically God, worship. I, I've never thought about this. Brought that in to Antioch. That's how we know there was music set with prayer in that setting. There's some things that I'm going through right now uh, with with a business I own and seeking the Lord on what it is that he wants for that and i want whatever he wants and i've hit some confusion lately of like father what do you tell me to do and he said you're going to worship your way to victory mm, wow remember when paul paul and silas <laughs> oh I, and they're in the prison and, and michael i i think they're they're worshiping right they're yes. singing yes they're singing at midnight it said when at midnight they begin to worship and sing hang, hang on worship and sing mm-hmm. oh man <laughs> God loves music. I got. I have a word, and I think we'll shut her down for this one. There's a judgment in the music stream in the charismatic mm-hmm. church that's coming from the Father. A lot of people aren't open to the Father being a judge because they don't read the Word. Probably, I, I don't know what why that triggers so many people. There's so mm-hmm. many songs and so many motives that are just so impure. And in this next session, we're going to talk about what's the difference in like ministering to people and ministering to the Lord, get into some Zadok stuff. Father, I thank you for anyone, everyone who's listening. I pray that you begin to raise houses of prayer. I pray that you begin to raise Antiochs all over the world for your glory, for this end time move of you, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Coach and Joe Leadership Podcast. Don't miss the Coach and Joe Talk Show on YouTube and check out coachandjoe.com for more resources, blogs, and merch. We will see you next time.